Have you ever wondered how doctors keep up with new information? One way is to go to conferences to hear lectures from the top people, but you can't go to more than one or two conferences a year. The usual approach is to read medical journals, but there are 28,000 peer-reviewed medical journals published in the United States, which translates to 1.8 million scientific articles published every year. Now, granted, that includes page turners like Hepatitis Monthly that I definitely don't need to read, but even narrowing it down to stuff that is relevant to me, there's still roughly 50 OBGYN journals, and it would be humanly impossible to read every one. I have enough trouble finishing my Sunday New York Times before the next one arrives. So enter Journal Club. In many academic institutions, groups gather on a regular basis and discuss articles that are particularly interesting and important. So today, I'm going to have a mini journal club with my favorite go-to menopause maven, Dr. Mary Jane Minkin. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. When it comes to menopause, midlife, and what comes after, I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information. It would take me the next hour to mention all of Dr. Minkin's accomplishments, titles, and publications, but suffice it to say that she's a clinical professor of OBGYN at Yale University in New Haven, and not only is she recognized by women all over the country as one of the top authorities on all things menopause, but she's the go-to expert that the experts go to. Her website, Madam Overy, is loaded with videos, articles, and episodes from her podcast, Lady Parts. All that aside, she's one of my favorite people to hang out with. A couple of months ago, we were doing a panel together in New York, and in between talking about hormones and vaginas, we also managed to cover music, books, and our favorite lipsticks. So welcome, Dr. Minkin. <laughs> Lauren, as always, you are much too kind, and thank you so much, and thank you for asking me to visit with you. And I know you love the new lipstick. That's great. I do, I do. And you know, it actually occurred to me, as I was getting ready for the podcast that I'm not wearing the new lipstick because I have a lipstick, which is sitting here by my screen. And and the good one that you told me about is in my bathroom. One of the things that occurred to me after we scheduled this episode and we decided we were going to talk about recent journal articles, I realized that what we really should be talking about is one of our favorite passions, and that's the history of gynecology. So before we even start, I'm inviting you back. Okay. You all right with that? It's a pleasure, as always. So I know one journal that we both read is Menopause. There's a million out there, but but that's kind of one of our, our go-tos, of course. Sure. And I think we would agree that it's maybe the leading journal, if not the leading journal when it comes to menopause research. Sure. I picked a few studies from the most recent edition that I thought were worthy. And I'm just kind of curious because I know what I think makes an article worthy. What do you think makes an article worthy? I think you pick good articles, as always. I think it's worthy if it's uh, important. Okay. I mean, there are, there, you and I both know in the literature, there are all these esoteric things which are addressed. And I'm saying, well, who cares about that? Who cares? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. These are all important topics. Um, and the data is good. Okay. They collect good data. They analyze the data appropriately. Um, they put it into context of previous studies. I think all of that's important. I think those are things you look at when you review an article for a journal as far as saying, except this journal, you know, it's article for the journal or not. 
And the other thing, of course, one of the articles that I, I do want to talk about a little bit is uh, things like biological plausibility. There was this very famous epidemiologist back in Britain a number of years ago, Sir uh, Bradford Austin Hill, and that basically one of his leading criteria for something being reasonable was biological plausibility. And if it goes against that, it's sort of like dumb. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the way I look at it. So I think all of those have to be satisfied to say this is an interesting and solid article. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also the thing that's confusing to a lot of people is the difference between association and causation. Absolutely. You know, because we know that every single person who committed a murder ate bread in the last seven days before they committed a murder. It doesn't mean that eating bread causes exactly. you to, you know, to murder somebody. So exactly. And, and that's something that gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. And when we go and we'll probably talk a little bit about this later. But for example, one of the major things that affects us and more importantly, our patients every day is, well, my cousin Susie took estrogen and she got breast cancer. Therefore, estrogen causes breast cancer. Right. You know? right. And I'll say you might as well say, well, you know, your cousin Susie also had blue eyes. Is that why she got breast cancer, too? Exactly. Some people Blue eyes yeah. get breast cancer also. So you, you have to analyze all of these issues and really put them into, again, a, a biological plausibility and analyze the data appropriately. The other thing I look at, of course, when I when I look at an article's being worthy is, is it going to change the way I practice? Is it going to change? I'm a clinician at the end of the day. I do research. I publish stuff, as do you. But at the end of the day, I want to know, is this going to change what I'm going to advise patients? Because medicine does evolve. And things that people were told 10 or 15 years ago don't hold true today. And it's not that it was wrong then. It was, that was based on the science as it was then. Absolutely. And one example that I would bring out that I think our listeners would be interested in knowing about, and I'm a little older than you, Lauren. Just a touch. Just a touch. <laughs> when I was a little girl, we were taught that herpes caused cervical cancer. And you were probably at the tail end of the herpes causes cervical cancer. I was actually right in the thick of it. When I started medical school, I was mm -hmm. convinced. We now know what causes cervical cancer. Exactly. And not too long beyond that, people realized, oh, no, really, the virus that's associated with cervical cancer is the human papillomavirus, HPV. Now, it just so happens that many people who have herpes also may happen to have the human papillomavirus. Yeah. But you know, subsequent data has shown that that's the association, not herpes. But many people still, you know, in their minds, you know, it's the herpes that causes cervical cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise, early studies that showed that coffee was a problem right. in pregnancy. It's because all the coffee drinkers were also smoking <laughs> and they never separated it out. So, exactly. yeah. But the exactly. other thing also that I like when I'm looking at it as, a, as an article worthy is there are so many things that we take to be factual or we take to be true, but we're never studied, but everyone talks about it as if it's the gospel. I mean, every time I hear that wear cotton underwear because it's going to decrease yeast infections, that has never been proven in any scientific study, yet you see it all the time and you see people saying it who are otherwise credible people. So I love when I come across an article that takes something that's a tried and true quote fact and says, mm. Mm, actually, maybe that's not the case. Right. All right. So let's get to our first article. All of the articles, again, that I chose today were in the journal Menopause, either the issue that just came out or the one from last month. So this first article is called Treating Where It Hurts, a randomized comparative trial of vestibule estradiol for postmenopausal dyspareunia. So basically, in this study, what they did is instead of the standard way of using 
vaginal estrogen, where you put the estrogen inside the vagina, they took 50 women and said to them, no, don't put it inside your vagina, just apply it directly to the vestibule, to the opening of the vagina. And let's see if this is going to decrease pain with penetration, dyspareunia. And what they found is that in fact, in this group, that it did decrease pain. Mm-hmm. And and their summary of it was basically, okay, you don't need to put estrogen in the vagina, you can just apply it to the vestibule. Now, I know my reaction to the article, but I want to hear your reaction first. Well, I took away several things from the article. First of all, it actually confirms a lot of what I tell my patients, because I always say, yes, it's fine to insert some with the plunger and stuff like that. But what I really want you to do is to take some on your finger and smear it around here and there. And I say, but don't worry, I never write smear around because it'll embarrass you in the eyes of the pharmacist or something like that. But I tell them exactly what I want them to do. So it's basically, I'm sure you tell people pretty much the same sort of thing as far as what to do. A couple other things, though, that I took out of the article. Um, One, the other side thing is they measured estrogen levels. They measured estrogen levels in the blood. And they showed that really, and two things they showed. Number one, they showed that a small amount of cream worked pretty much as well as a larger amount of cream, a a higher concentration, which was interesting. So you don't need a heck of a lot to do the job. The other thing, though, is the amount of estrogen that was being used gave them no substantial blood level, okay, which basically confirms data out there, which is important to everybody, but it's really important for our breast cancer survivors because, unfortunately, although the North American menopause Society, the American College of OBGYNs have both issued official position statements saying that if a woman is not getting successful uh, relief from topical non-hormonal preparations, that you may use vaginal estrogen safely. Many oncologists don't accept that. And so this is another paper documenting, yeah, you don't really get significant blood levels. So it really is okay for those breast cancer survivors to use this. No, absolutely. And and the protocol in this particular study was they had women applying this estrogen cream every single night. It wasn't right. twice a week. And one of the things I think that is another interesting takeaway is many women think, well, if you're worried about using estrogen, you should use less on the vagina. And mm-hmm. actually, the more you use, the less it gets absorbed because it builds up that top layer of the vaginal tissue so that you get less in. So these women that go the other way and they go, okay, I'm really terrified. I'm just Mm going to use a little bit every couple of weeks. First of all, it's not going to be any good, but second of all, it's actually going to get absorbed much more easily than someone who's using it regularly. Correct. When you have a vagina and the vestibule that's well estrogenized, you really get significantly less absorption. That's absolutely correct. So that's another takeaway from this study. Okay. But so this was my takeaway. I'm not as kind as you are. I looked at this and I'm like, are you kidding? Because first of all, like you, this is not news to me. I've been telling women for years that they have to treat not just the vagina, but also the vestibule. It doesn't matter how nice the room is if you can't get through the door. So I don't care what kind of estrogen someone's putting in their vagina, whether it's a cream, a tablet, a ring, whatever. In most cases, they're also going to need to put some estrogen around the opening. So I know not everyone does that, and this is a good reminder that they should, but you and I have been doing this all the time. So that's not something new that's going to change the way we practice. But the other thing that bothered me about this article is that the only thing they looked at was pain. Right. And we know the genital urinary syndrome of menopause, GSM, isn't just about pain with penetration. It's also about the urgency, the recurrent urinary tract infections, just the general discomfort. And 
Not to mention, we know that, yes, getting in is the problem for a lot of people. But once someone gets in the vagina, once that penis goes in there, you want some decent lubrication. And we know that you are not going to get lubrication from the vestibule. That's going to come from the vagina. And yes, in this article, they say, use a nice silicone lubricant. Well, we're all going to vote for that. We think that's nice. No problem with that. But why not? Why not? put it in the vagina to get the bladder support and to also help with vaginal lubrication. And that's why this article personally made me nuts because they're making it sound like, oh, you have to be careful with your vagina. And you and I are like, no, smear it everywhere. Put it on your urethra, put it on your clitoris, put it on your vulva, put it on your vestibule, put it in your vagina. Other than trying to save money, which is a major factor, there is no reason to be so careful with your estrogen. So I did not like this article. I did not like the study design. If I had been the one reviewing it, I would have said, no, I want you to look at other endpoints, other outcomes, other than just can the penis get in the vagina? That's not enough, you know. Yes. There's a lot more, you know, or does she have an orgasm? Is she, you know, what's, what's going on with the bladder? What's going on with lubrication? It's not just about, can he get inside? It's also about the woman's pleasure. And we're going to bring that back on our last paper that we're looking That's at. That's right. Systemic versus topical therapies. Absolutely. And we will bring that in. The one other thing though that I do want to bring out that, and, and to our younger listeners, I'm sorry if I'm offending you all, but I'm known to offend everybody. So it's fine. I'm like, those you never offend anybody. <laughs> yes, I do. Even, yes, even I do. when you try. So I, I do, do on the other hand, but yeah. What? Hardly. But the thing to remember is the one thing that they did point out, which is absolutely correct, is that when you are giving somebody vaginal estrogen, okay, yes, you tell her she's going to see some changes in the first month, but to see the maximum effect, you really have to wait three months to see the maximum yeah. effect. And we have many, many of our younger folks coming in who are like, they've used it for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks and they're not totally better. You know, okay. And I say, be patient, keep using it. You're better. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm somewhat better, but I'm not perfect. And it's like, yeah, if you give it that three months, you're going to be a lot better. You know, you may well be a lot better in three months. So, and then there's the ones that, that have a date on Friday night. So they start the restaurant on on Wednesday. Yes, exactly. They have a day. It's not a lubricant. It's not a lubricant. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. So the key is that I, you know, just to tell people do be patient. It will get better. As I said, and you're getting some relief now. That's terrific, but let's give it that three months. And they, they certainly demonstrate that nicely here. Yeah. And and how many times do you have patients who do get the relief and then they decide to stop and they're surprised right. when things go back to the Sahara Desert uh, levels? Yeah. And, and you got it's, you know, when people say, How long do I use this? And I say, until you're forever. dead. <laughs> exactly. I tell people this is not like treating a strep throat with penicillin. You know, yeah. you treat a strep throat with penicillin, you're going to be fine. That's terrific. This is not treating a strep throat with penicillin. Yeah. You know, you got to keep using it. I think of it like brushing your teeth. If you mm-hmm. brush your teeth on Monday morning, it doesn't mean you're off the hook the rest of the week. Correct. Absolutely correct. So keep yeah. using it. And that's why you can put this with a toothpaste. Just don't confuse it. But <laughs> Oh, I did that once. <laughs> it's well, we're not going to go there. All right. Moving on. Moving on to the next article. This article takes a completely different direction. Uh, this article was about the association between hormone therapy and the risk of lung cancer in postmenopause women. And this really got my attention because there have been a number of studies that have come out that have suggested that there is an association between lung cancer and hormone therapy. So this article really was about, okay, 
we're going to, we're going to figure this out. It was a big study, 15 years. There were over 38,000 women who were using hormone therapy and there were mass participants who were not using hormone therapy. Uh, I think what about 150,000 of them. So it was a big study. It was, it was really good in terms of the numbers and in terms of the length of time. The result of this study was that there was no association with hormone therapy and the risk of of lung cancer. So first of all, I, I want to know prior to this article, what were you telling your patients about the association of hormone therapy and lung cancer? And then what was your take from this article? Well, I really never believed again, this gets back to the biological plausibility. There was yeah. no reason whatsoever that estrogen should be associated with the risk of lung cancer. It made no sense with them whatsoever. And really, if you look at most of the data that suggested there was an association, it's pretty specious data. And as you say, this is a very nice study. It's a big study. It's a big review. And the other thing to remember from many foreign countries, which unfortunately we don't have in the U.S., is we don't have huge databases. You know, many right. of the foreign countries, when you look at Taiwan or you look at South Korea, as we will in the next patient, next paper, you know, you have large databases and people, you know what they're getting, you know what they've been exposed to and things like that. And you have a reasonably homogeneous population. And when you have all those things taken care of, that you can, I think, get some good big data out of there and say mm-hmm. what's going on. Yes. So I basically told people there may be some suggestions in the literature, but if there's any increased risk, it's pretty damn small. And also, I would say also, I'd much rather you stop smoking than stop taking your estrogen. Biological plausibility leaves a lot to be desired on that question. And I did forget to mention that that paper was out of Taiwan. And and just a comment about when we look at the literature, while I stick to the U.S. literature, certainly there are journals from all over the world, within the U.S. literature, they are going to use data from all over the world if it is well done. And mm-hmm. and I think that's an important point because as you said, we don't have the kind of database that they do in other countries, particularly where they have nationalized health insurance like the UK that's and et cetera, right. where everyone's on the same system and they can really track this kind of stuff. And that's huge. Yeah. That's really right. valuable. Well, I'm kind of with you, you know, for, for years when I give everyone my list of what will estrogen therapy and hormone therapy do for you, what won't do for you, what are the risks? What are the benefits? And I kind of just never mentioned lung cancer because yeah. I just thought, well, you know, yeah, I know there were a few studies that maybe showed that there was an association, but it didn't make sense to me. I didn't think the studies were particularly well done. So this is nice to have this because now we can officially cross that off our list of things that we are obligated to tell patients when they want to know all the risks and benefits of treatment. I chose the next article, even though it's kind of a, you know, in the, in the same vein. And this one was the effects of menopausal hormone therapy on the risk of ovarian cancer. While lung cancer, you think it's not biologically plausible, ovarian cancer is in a different category because there are hormone receptors on the ovaries, even ovaries that are no longer in business. So this was an, another big study, 17 year study. And it had over um, about a million patients in it. I mean, it was crazy. There was huge, 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 huge. And they looked not only at estrogen, but they looked at a lot of different types of estrogen. Yeah. And what was also interesting is they actually looked at something that we don't get. I know. <laughs> tibolone. We all want tibolone. tibolone. Explain what tibolone is because you know it pops up here and there and we don't have it in the U.S., but they do have it in other markets. Yes. In several Asian markets and several European markets, they have it. Tibolone is sort of like a wonder drug. It's sort of a pre-hormone when you get down to it. It basically breaks down into estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. It's like you name it. That's what tibolone becomes. And it's sort of like an all-purpose pill. 
um, and it's widely used and it's also good for bone health. I mean, it's got yeah. a lot of advantages um, as far as it, besides symptomatology. And it was going to be introduced into the U.S. a number of years ago uh, from Europe. And unfortunately, in the studies and truly there were like two cases of uterine cancer in the studies that were like, which probably were random events when, because you look at the European data really doesn't show any significant increased risk of uterine cancer, but that basically knocked it off of the U S and they stopped it. They really did not import it at all. Now I do have some patients who've been getting it from Europe, not too many these days, but I have in the past. Um, but, yeah, but, but it's, it's so it's, interesting though, because, you know, Tibalone is something of course that you and I have been reading about and hearing about for, for decades now. It's not, it's like, it's a new thing. And it just is so frustrating when we have something which we know is beneficial, which we know is low risk and, and not just beneficial, but has benefits that other oh, yeah. hormones that we use do not. Yeah. What's important to understand is it's not that unusual for a drug to be approved and distributed in other countries that do, does not get approved in the U.S. quite simply because it's easier to get approved and it's less expensive. And a lot of pharmaceutical companies, if they have a drug and it doesn't get past the gate in the US, they'll say, okay, forget it. We're just going to take this to Europe and not bother with the US. And Tibalone is a perfect example. In this study, what did Tibalone they find? proved to be better. Basically, it was, it was right, it decreased. Tibalone decreased. In people who were using long term hormone therapy, women that chose Tibalone as their form of hormone therapy had decreased ovarian cancer. Now, the other thing, though, we have to say, I want to be, you know, I always say me and Fox News, we got to be fair and balanced here. You know, well, you're fair and balanced. I won't address Fox News. (laughs) This may achieve statistical significance because it's a huge study. Okay, but however, the difference is minuscule. I mean, the reduced rate of, of cancer was very small. It really yeah. achieves statistical significance was a very small decreased risk. So it's close enough to you. Fair. But to me, the exciting part wasn't so much that it reduced the risk of ovarian cancer, right. but there was no increase. Right. Exactly. And there was no, no increase in any form of right. hormone therapy. So this yeah. is so reassuring because exactly. as we talk about all the time, you know, there's this sense that hormone therapy and particularly estrogen increases the risk of cancer. And we know it is quite the opposite. It you know, decreases breast cancer, of course, in women who are taking estrogen alone or a micronized progesterone. And now we know that there's also no increase in ovarian cancer. There's no increase in lung cancer. And there's no increase in uterine cancer as long as they're taking an appropriate either progesterone or progesterone alternative. We need there to get may the actually word be out. a decreased risk in women who are taking estrogen plus daily progestogens. Well, last week's episode was on um, progestogen, and I did mention that women who take estrogen and progesterone together have a, a lower rate of uterine cancer than the general population because the progesterone is so protective, particularly for women who are overweight, because we know that women who are overweight are increased risk for uterine cancer, and exactly. that really mitigates it. So hormone therapy is an anti-cancer approach, and I think we couldn't state that enough. All right, next paper. I was I didn't mean to be self-serving with this one, but I thought I would just throw it in there. This is a paper that I wrote um, that was yes. published in, in the journal Menopause, and it's caused yes. diagnosis causes and treatment of dyspareunia in postmenopause yes. women. Yes. And the reason that I wrote this paper is first of all, I was invited to. Sometimes this happens that the editor of a journal will actually contact someone and say, 
would you please write an article, usually a review article? And I was asked to write this article after I gave grand rounds at, at Harvard. And the uh, editor of the journal Menopause, of course, is the chair at, at Harvard, Dr. Schiff. And my my lecture was about all of the things other than genital urinary syndrome, menopause, and atrophy that cause painful sex. Because one of the things, of course, that makes me crazy, and I'm sure makes you crazy, is every single woman that has painful sex and goes to her doctor is told, well, this is what happens in menopause. And is either told use a lubricant or sometimes given a hormone therapy preparation or a local estrogen, which is fine. But more often than not, this is all done without the benefit of an exam. Correct. And you miss all this other stuff. So, all right, you can, and I can take it. You can be negative. Yeah, what did you think of, of the article? I thought the article was good. And I think it was very appropriate to bring out all the other things that can be going on. And this is actually, so it brings out one of the things that I'm, I'm actually, and I'm going to say something that's not politically correct. How could that be amazing? <laughs> um, that we know that, for example, at least at the current time, uh, there are guidelines that states stop doing pap smears at age 65, which actually I do not adhere to. I do pap smears on my patients. I think every other year is totally fine. I don't think you need an annual pap smear. But one thing that we know that drives women to come in for exams is the concept of doing a pap smear. Right. Okay. And it is not to generate business for ourselves. I mean, many people say, oh, it's just because you want to generate business. No, I want to see what's going on with somebody's bottom. I really want to see yeah. what's going on because many of these women will be experiencing dryness. And as we talk about, you know, the next paper, they'd be basically um, too embarrassed to talk about it. Yeah. They don't want bring it up. And at least if you are examining, doing a pelvic exam, looking at somebody's perineum, you can see what's going on. You can That's say, right. are you feeling yeah. Absolutely. And and, yeah. and the thing is, is that, of course, they think it's a normal part of aging and that there's no solutions right, anyway. So, and, and what happens also, and I, and I do address this in the paper, because one of the bigger issues is that the majority of women over the age of 50 have one primary care physician or clinician. And more mm -hmm. often than not, it's going to be an internist or a family doctor. Mm -hmm. And the American College of Physicians, who is the, the Society for Internists, specifically says, do not do a gynecologic mm -hmm. exam. Do not mm -hmm. do a pelvic exam unless the woman has a complaint. And no complaint doesn't mean no problem. So it's become a no-fly zone below the belly button. Right. And we have right. women who literally are not only experiencing dryness and dermatologic vulvar conditions like lichen sclerosis, but serious yeah. things like vulvar cancer and prolapse. And yep. you know, we could go on and on and on with all of the things that are getting missed because yep. women are not having an exam. And you are correct in that for many women, a pap test is synonymous with a pelvic exam. Thank and you. And they're not going to the gynecologist. So it's a huge problem. And it really was actually one of the things that, that drove me to write this article is to say, you know, we, we got to change this. The other thing also, when I was, when I was researching the article and it actually took me a full year to write and it was originally about 80 pages. And when I sent it in, the journal editor said, are you kidding? You know, so it went through multiple, <laughs> multiple. Yeah. But I, so I do have a much longer version in case anybody ever wants it. But one of the things that was really hard, made it really hard for me to research this 
is that the overwhelming majority of studies on painful sex in postmenopausal women, of course, number one, are only about atrophy. They don't talk about these other things. But Mm -hmm. the second thing is, is you would think that everyone over the age was not only not having sex over the age of 60, but dead. Because in most of these articles, when you, the first thing you always look at is, well, who did they study? Who did they include in their research? And I reviewed hundreds of articles. And in the majority of these articles, they only went up to maybe age 60 or 65. Mm -hmm. And life expectancy is well into the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And we know certainly that many of these women continue or desire to be sexually active. And it's like they didn't exist. So Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how many times I would say, I don't have the data to support this over the age of XYZ, because the study has never been done. And it's very, very frustrating. The other thing also that made it very difficult to write this article is that many of the studies only included women who were actually having sex. Okay, but what about all the women who aren't having sex because it hurts too damn much? And suddenly they're not in the study. So you already are picking a skewed population of people who actually not only have a partner and have the desire, but are actually able to get the penis in the vagina, which is excluding like a lot of women. So most of these studies aren't even all that valid. It was a very difficult article to write, which is why it took me such a long time. Well, kudos for doing it. That's terrific that you did it. And uh, you you, you announced some very important things that people should be considering. Yeah. And And also what it told me is we, like everything else, we need a lot more research. We need more studies. We need to acknowledge that women are living longer, that they continue to be in relationship, including new relationships, that women are self-sexual, even if there isn't a relationship in their life. And a lot of women get pleasure from penetrative sex, whether it's with a penis or a toy. And we just can't ignore this anymore. It's mm-hmm. just, it's a problem. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next one. And I bet you and I are both going to have our issues with this one. So yes. this, and and just so everybody knows, we did not talk in advance. I just sent which articles I wanted to talk about and said, <laughs> let's have at it. So we are talking about these articles for the very first time right here. Correct. So maybe we're going to agree and maybe not. This next article was called Menopause Hormone Therapy and Urinary Symptoms, a Systemic Review. So could you just start before we talk about this specific article, explain to everyone what a systemic review is as opposed to a new study. This basically is looking at extant data that's out there from other previous studies, summarizing it, basically reviewing it and not doing new studies on the topic. Right, right. It's looking at what's already been done and saying, okay, we're going to gather all these studies together and look and see which ones are valid and which ones aren't. So the whole premise of this study was looking at postmenopause women who are having urinary symptoms like mm-hmm. urgency, recurrent urinary tract infections, frequency, painful urination, and to look and see what the relationship was between someone who's using systemic hormone therapy and someone who's using a local vaginal estrogen in right. terms of mitigating these symptoms. So the mm-hmm. first thing I want to ask you is, before you read this article, what did you tell your patients? So a woman comes into you and she says, okay, yeah, recurrent urinary tract infections. It hurts when I pee. I'm getting really uncomfortable. I'm thinking about taking hormone therapy for my hot flashes. Is that going to help my bladder? What would you tell her? The answer is yes, it's going to help your bladder. Okay. Now, 
Officially, though, and again, we've had this official dogma for many years that if the only symptom people have is vaginal, they're having no, no, she's no got hot flash. No, we're, we're, I'm, I gave you a hot flasher. Yeah, we're you talking, gave me a hot flash. No, Mrs. No, no, Mrs. No. comes in the clinic. She is she's having hot terrible flashes. hot flashes. Yeah, no. She's this constantly woman, peeing. This woman is a candidate for systemic therapy. There's okay. no question about it. Okay, now. Part of the problem, because the, the basic thing is, if you look at the, as I call them, the PP studies, as opposed to the regular general studies, if you look at the exp- expressly ones that are looking at bladder symptomatology, okay, there are a number of, there are a number of studies, and I will not negate that they exist, that show that incontinence, and it's not so much other pain stuff, but incontinence, right. if you just look at the incontinence studies with systemic therapy, they, many of them do show that systemic therapy actually can make them worse. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Those studies do exist. And, and specifically, let's be clear. We're specifically talking about stress incontinence. Stress incontinence. We have sneezing exactly. incontinence. Urgency is a little different. Cough, sneeze, leak. Cough, yeah. sneeze, leak. Exactly. Yeah. And the only logical explanation, and this has always bothered me as far as there's, there's a number of papers out there that say that. There's no question about it. And the only thing that I can think of logically is that there may be more engorgement of tissue. There may be some stimulation to the uterus a little bit that causes the pelvic structures to be heavier. They press down more and they leak more. That's the only logical explanation. I like that, that I explanation. Like I've never that. heard it before. That's interesting. But it's the only logical thing that ever made yeah. sense. Okay. However, if somebody's got hot flashes, et cetera, et cetera, I'm and, and as an osteoporosis candidate, which many of these women are, of course, I'm going to go with systemic therapy. And yeah. then we can certainly add topical therapy if necessary. Yeah. There's no but but, but back up a little bit because let's just say to add to the mix that Mrs. Fufufnik is not only having hot flashes and bladder symptoms, but she also is having vaginal dryness. So if yeah. she says to me, okay, I'm going to put my patch on and I'm going to take my Prometrium at night. Yeah. And what yeah. are the chances that this is going to help my bladder and my vagina? I don't know about you, but what I would tell her is there's a good chance, but it's not a guarantee. Yeah. We're looking exactly. at about probably about 70, 75% chance yeah. that it's going to help both, you know, your flashes and your bottom, but there's a good chance that it will. Yeah. And, and just as you said, that woman may also need a local vaginal estrogen, we but we are going to get some help from the oh, yeah. system. You're going to get significant help for the atrophy stuff to the joint. Yeah. She's not supposed to use the word atrophy. I know that too, but you know, I'm the least political. Well, no, you can use, no, atrophy is one of the signs of genital urinary syndrome and menopause. It's part yeah. of it. It's, I understand, but so it's not we, we can use that. that, you know. Okay. Okay. I like, that. I usually say genital dryness. It sounds so much friendlier. Sorry. <laughs> But so the key thing is that it's going to help. There's no question about it. What also drives me berserk is when I get notification from pharmacies telling uh, me, oh, no, you can, she's already on estrogen. You, right. You're already giving her estrogen. You don't need to add vaginal stuff. And the answer is, you know, sweetheart, you use it and see what happens. So the key thing is that many women will need a vaginal booster. And I tell right. folks that in my experience, and it's also interesting, there was talking about literature. I'll tell you one paper previously. But in my experience, it's about 20% of women need a vaginal booster. Yeah. There right. was a paper out of Canada about seven, eight years ago from the Royal, the Canadian Society, whatever, the OBGYN Society. They thought that there's about 40% of women needed vaginal boosters. Now, well, I was surprised at that because in my experience, it's nowhere near that. But there certainly are some people who will need both. Now, part of the thing to remember, though, and this is the other thing, and again, this is where me being older than you, I can remember this, that the doses of estrogen, have systemic estrogen, have decreased dramatically. 
right. in the last 50 years. I mean, there's no question about it. Yeah. I mean, I was a little kid and people, the dose of Premarin that people used because we didn't have anything else that was Premarin and that was it. The dose was 2.5 milligrams a day that people were using and people were being very uh, uh, dangerous in using 1.25, right. you know, and we now are standing dose if we are using conjugated equine estrogens, we're using 0.45. Right. So we're using a much lower systemic dose than we ever did. So I think that's part of the issue that we need, that it doesn't take- That we're not getting enough to cover the vagina and the bladder. So just to be very clear, because I don't want anyone to be confused, that you and I are in 100% agreement that if someone is using systemic hormone therapy, but is not getting adequate treatment of her vaginal symptoms or her bladder symptoms, that it is completely safe to also use a local vaginal estrogen. And every menopause expert is in agreement, even though- Sometimes people will get nervous. And as you said, some pharmacists will get nervous because they don't understand it. All right. So let's get to this article because there were a bunch of things in this article that conclusions that were, were kind of strange to me. And maybe yeah. I'm just not reading it right. Or you can explain it to me because you're much smarter than I am. No. But, <laughs> no. but you, but it says, and I'm, I'm quoting directly from this article that there is insufficient evidence to confirm that menopause is associated with urinary symptoms, but then goes on to say that a local hormone therapy is going to mitigate those symptoms. And it does. Did I, I, explain this to me. I mean, I'm usually pretty good at reading these articles and I know the author of this article, as do you. Yes, and, yes, and I almost called her up and said, huh? What? Yeah, I yeah. agree. No, I mean, estrogen works. There are as many estrogen receptors in the bladder, in most parts of the bladder, as there are on the vagina. Embryologically. So why would they say there is insufficient evidence to confirm that menopause is associated with urinary symptoms? I have no idea because there's okay, but this is the kind of stuff that people who don't know what we know and don't know the rest of the literature, they read this and they go out there and tell women, oh, those recurrent urinary tract infections, they have nothing to do with menopause. This is really a problem. This is bad information. But there are two things to discuss, which they didn't discuss in this article. And particularly, we're talking about urinary tract infections. And the other thing about urinary tract infections is they can kill you. Yes. And that's the part that nobody talks about. Eurosepsis is not a pleasant thing. Okay. And the issue is not only does the bladder benefit by the estrogen directly, but when you make the vagina moister and when you regenerate the superficial cells that line the vagina, okay, in a healthy estrogenized vagina, you end up with a much kinder bacterial flora. Okay. Than the nasty bacterial flora that occurs in a dry vagina. You know, okay. When the vagina gets dry, you end up with pretty rotten bacteria in there. And so you set, but you're setting up basically a perfect storm in a sense, because when you have the bladder and the urethra, which are unestrogenized, you know, okay. And you have all these nasty bacteria, which are very close by because the vagina and the urethra are not separated by very much difference and distance right. there that you have nastier bacteria attacking weaker tissue. And that's not good. Okay. Which drives me berserk when I get refusals from insurance companies to cover vaginal estrogen for people and and people who have recurrent UTIs. Right. Right. And, 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 and in fact, similarly, we give women uh, vaginal estrogen all the time for no other reason than her bladder infections. Someone who's not in the least bit interested in sexual activity. Yeah, this article was just kind of a a head scratcher. The conclusion of the whole article was there's insufficient evidence to confirm that menopause is associated with urinary symptoms. It does go on to say that vaginal estrogen improves urinary symptoms and decreases the risk of of recurrent UTI. Okay, it works. We, We know that. 
it really was kind of waffling about the systemic estrogen thing, which I thought was strange, strange. Yeah. And the other thing to also remember is that there are many women who really don't like to do vaginal stuff. They don't like to apply vaginal medications. They're not That's into right. that. But there are many women who will do better if they can, if they are candidates, and many are, to take a systemic thing because they'll be happier doing that. Well, not to mention um, espemaphine. The trade name is espemaphine. I, I do product. have a, an episode specifically about espemaphine because that's yep. a selective estrogen receptor modulator, exactly. which is a pill that goes in the mouth. But as you are mentioning, it will help support not just the, the vagina, but also the bladder and the vulva. And it's really a perfect option for women who just don't want to put something on their vagina or their vulva. And also, you know, when we look at an older population, you know, a lot of times we'll look at a woman who's in her 90s, who mm-hmm. is not interested in sexual activity, but is constantly having recurrent urinary tract infections yeah. and who's uncomfortable. And she may be a really good candidate to do something yeah. like a once a day pill that's going to keep yeah. her from having those recurrent infections. Absolutely. And the other p- people we can't forget are our pessary crowd. For those uh, folks who aren't familiar with pessaries, these are like sort of um, giant diaphragms, like giant contraceptive Okay, wait, 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 wait. These same folks who don't know what pessary is also don't know what a diaphragm is. But basically, these are rubber rubber doodads that go in the vagina to hold Rubber everything. doodad. Yeah, it's a scientific yeah, term, the doodad. The, or, the, or the hookie pookie, as is, is one of my that's all right. that's uh, mentors fine. used to call it. Put the hookie pookie in your vagina and it's going to hold up your uterus and your bladder. Exactly. And so many of these women, it's it's tough getting estrogen in there, you know, yeah. because they got this diaphragm, these, this big pessary in there. So those are actually very good as pemaphine candidates as well. Yeah. And they need to have that estrogen yep. support yep. because the vaginal walls get so thin that the pessary yep. can cause a great deal of irritation, exactly. discharge. And we talked a lot about, you talked about the microbiome, the fact that you want to have the good, healthy bacteria exactly. instead of the nasty bacteria. Exactly. So, but I think overall, when, when we look at these journal articles and you and I, I know are avid journal article readers and sure. But you kind of have to actually read the whole article. Sometimes you read the abstract, which is just the summary, and you have a takeaway that may not be actually accurate. And and you and I both review articles for journals, which is a thankless job. And <laughs> I am probably a, a tougher reviewer than others. There's a couple of the articles that we reviewed today that I would have said, no, I'm not going to accept this for publication unless they make some changes or do something different. Because these things matter. People hang right. their hat on it. Yeah. And I think that's the same hat that we wear, because when we review an article, we have to think of the public consequences of the article mm-hmm. and what's going to be taken away by your readers and how yeah. are they going to act? Yeah. You know? I mean, I think we feel sorry for the person who's submitting the article because we all know how hard <laughs> it is to get published. Right. Yeah, they, the experience of, of writing a scientific article, of spending sometimes years of your life doing a study doing and then submitting it and only to have it get rejected by someone like you or me. So I do I do take the responsibility seriously. Sure. But on the other hand, there are consequences. And these journals, they live on and on and on. There's, there's one article, which I'm not even going to go there, but it is written about complications of using the uh, laser, the CO2 laser for treatment of vaginal dryness. And it's a terrible article. And it was just so poorly done and so poorly written, and it never should have been published. And every time I turn around, people are quoting that article. It's a problem. 
Yeah. Now, you have to think people need to think. And of course, I mean, we 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 can get back to the foundation, one of the foundational papers in our uh, in our business, which was published uh, and the article that changed. We won't we won't say it by name. We'll just talk about it. But an article that was published, which changed all of menopausal care in the United States as of 2002. The major statement that was made that scared everybody out of them was based on a non-significant statistic. It was well, okay. But no, no, no. I think it's important because I talk about the WHI study all the time. And not only was it statistically significant um, number, the the increased risk of breast cancer, but it was in a population and using a drug that we don't even use most of the time. And and when people said to me, was it a bad study? And my answer is no, it was a very good study if what you're studying is women who are over the age of 65, who've never had a hot flash in their life, who are taking oral estrogen and, and a synthetic progesterone. It was an excellent study, but, it's, but that study was no good for 99% of the population, which is younger and is taking hormone therapy for alleviation of hot flashes. And, and as you said, it changed the way that we practice menopause therapy and people continue to hang their head on that study, even though it is widely misunderstood and misquoted. It makes what we do challenging because we try and be responsible. We try and follow the science, but it's not always easy to do, even if you do go to the conferences and, <laughs> and, and read the journal articles. So I'm, I'm trying to maybe give a hall pass to some of the doctors out there who are not knowing all of the data, because even people that try and do so sometimes find it really challenging. Absolutely. So tell me something else. You always have something to say. What else should I tell you? Um, I think that uh, you picked some very excellent articles for us to discuss and to point out some of the foibles that uh, you get from reviewing papers and from publishing papers and and what's good out there. However, the one thing that I would that, you know, I, I, I and I would say this to all our listeners that I'm delighted that they're listening to something scientific, because unfortunately, one of the things that also drives me berserk is the way that people access information from non-experts, that somebody who's an actress or an influencer or things like that, you know, whatever you call these people, um, should not be helping people make medical decisions. Yeah. I think. Well, I mean, you're, you're speaking my language. I, I have a newsletter, a monthly newsletter that goes out and my June newsletter just went out and my lead article was basically don't be duped by influencers, which is not a real job, who sit there and talk about things like balancing your hormones, which is not a real thing. And they just make up this pseudoscience, this scientific hocus pocus. And, and I used to blame them for doing this, the people that do, you know, that, that spread this kind of misinformation in the Suzanne Summers of the world. And the truth is, is I've kind of switched my blame, if you will. I blame legitimate doctors who don't tell patients what they need to know. The reason that women read Suzanne Summers book is because their own doctors weren't helping them. That's where we fall short is while we surround ourselves with people who do read the literature and who do give good information, we know that there's a lot of people out there that that's not the case. And women are really just kind of left out there on an island. I just got a mailing yesterday from a spa in my neighborhood Mm -hmm. and the headline was, come and learn about menopause. And I thought, oh, how nice. So I clicked on that to see what they said. And they basically said, we're going to show you how if you eat certain foods and do Pilates, that all of your menopause symptoms will disappear. And I'm thinking, really? Pilates is going to help someone's vaginal dryness? I don't think so. Eating blueberries is going to help someone's vaginal dryness? I don't think so. You can't kumbaya away 
all of these symptoms, and yet women are fed that on a regular basis. Well, I, I will, in the see you and raise you one category, one of the things that drove me most berserk, but not coming from an influencer or something like that, this is actually something I heard on NPR. It was on July 9th, 2002. It was the day that the WHI results were announced. And I was driving home and it was probably eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night because I spent a very long time in the office that day answering the telephone. And on NPR, as I, and I remember exactly where I was on my way home, and they were interviewing somebody who was from, I, I, I'll offend some listeners here too, from California having a nice day. But anyway, but, it, but she was a research person yeah. and she said, well, you know, estrogen does help with hot flashes, but you know, they go away. They only last for two years and then they're all better. And she was clearly a young person. You could tell yeah. Michael and stuff like that. And I was like, I'm moving to California where the hot flashes only last for two years. <laughs> and well, this was like NPR from a scientist. And people still say that instead of, you know, average seven to 10 longer, particularly if you're black. Exactly. But on the day that the WHI was released, and I was doing a fair amount of media at that time, and I was on pretty much every station, including NPR. And one of the interviewers said to me on NPR, when we were reviewing the WHI data, and I was trying to explain it, and her exact words to me, as she was sweating, by the way, because she'd stopped her estrogen, so the sweat's (laughs) pouring down her face. And she said to me, don't you feel guilty? And I said, what? She said, don't you feel guilty? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Why would I feel guilty? She said, you've been prescribing estrogen to women and you've been prescribing something that's going to give them cancer. Don't you feel guilty? Oh, my God. You know, and and there is live TV, of course. And I just said, no, actually, I, I don't. I tell my patients the science as we know it and the science sometimes changes and we need to interpret this in the bigger picture and understand all the nuances. She wasn't interested in that. She, she was sitting there sweating bullets saying, well, you, you should feel guilty, you know, because you you told women to take estrogen. So <laughs> what can I say? It's the media and live media is even more interesting. I've certainly had my share of, as have you, you've done quite a bit of media. And that's actually how we very first met. We have a, a mutual friend true. who introduced us because we were both doing some interviews in New York. That's how we became friends. And then, exactly. of course, found each other at all the same conferences and have known each other for a long time now. Long time. Long time. Long time. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. This has been great. I think we should do this as a regular thing. I love doing Journal Club with you. because Well, this no, but honestly, fun. the reason I like doing it is because you know the data. Yeah, I can actually... <laughs> Well, you do. You know the data. You know what else. Both know the data. It's nice to have a conversation with someone who is informed as opposed to someone who takes every article at face value. It's all about putting it in context and knowing what came right. before it and yes. what kinds of things we're looking at now. So thank you for taking the time to doing this. Thank you for doing what you do. In the program notes, I will put all the links about how to find all your stuff, including Madam Overy and your podcasts and everything else. And we are going to have another conversation one day about fun stuff with the history of gynecology, because that stuff is so cool. So cool. Of course it is. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I thank you for the kind invitation to join you and visit with you as it is always entertaining and fun and educational, of course. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. 
See the light. 